In the United States, there is no day that is associated with so much destruction, pain, and death as is September 11, 2001. The day when four hijacked planes crashed into the World Trade Center, Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and changed the course of American and international politics. As we recall the events and victims of 9-11 that occurred 21 years ago, we dive into one of history's most tragic days and assess the psychology of 9-11 conspiracy theories. I am your social chemist Nelson, and on this 9-11 conspiracy theory series, we start this journey by revisiting the plane that never made it to its intended target, Flight 93. Where were you on 9-11? It is often a question that is asked around September here in America. On 9-11, I was in the third grade, and I remember my teachers looking at the television, mesmerized by what they were witnessing. The teachers wouldn't allow us to see what was going on, so I managed to peek a glimpse and recall seeing only one tower on the TV, which I thought was unusual since, since I remember there being two. As one of my teachers came back, he decided to inform us what was happening. Now, since I was only a third grader, I didn't understand the context of the situation, but essentially, what he said was that a plane had hit a building. Now, at first, I mistook plane for train and thought that the Empire State Building was the building that got hit which didn't make sense in my head because how could a train hit the Empire State Building? A couple of hours later, children's names were being called every three minutes. At the time, me and my classmates were excited because we wanted to go home. <laughs> After about 45 minutes, I finally heard my name, Nelson Perez, please come to the main office with your belongings for pickup. I then saw my mom and I, and I asked her, why was she picking me up since my mom never took me out of school during the middle of the school day? But before she could answer, I remember seeing a line of concerned parents waiting to take their children out of school. When I asked again why I was leaving early, she told me, El cielo no está atacando con aviones, which is translation for, the sky is attacking us with planes. I then looked up only to see nothing but a clear blue sky from the safety of my neighborhood, a privilege many on 9-11 did not have. It was rumored around my community that more planes were coming down and that they were targeting schools in the northeast which is where I was located on 9-11, and still reside to this day. Now when it comes to 9-11 and the conspiracy theories that follow it, the topic is immense, and because my time in producing episodes is limited, I decided to turn this into a series where we look at the different conspiracy theories that have consumed September 11, 2001. I'm also doing this to give myself more time to read on the other parts of 9-11 since to understand the conspiratorial mindset of September 11, one must understand politics, psychology, and physics. For this reason, I wanted to start with Flight 93, since its conspiracy theorists the most complicated event to explain, but yet, they find ways to explain it, even though their reasonings are flawed. Now, Flight 93 hits close to home because I actually live really close to Newark Liberty International Airport where Flight 93 took off, and to know that I was a couple of miles away from Al-Qaeda terrorist is pretty eerie. As a matter of fact, one of the ringleaders stayed overnight at the Marriott Hotel located inside the airport. If you're driving on Route 109 from Newark, entering Elizabeth, New Jersey, you can actually see it on your left side. And every time I'm at Newark Airport, I can't stop and think that, at some point in time, the passengers from that flight walked through that airport and never made it back. So for today's episode, we're going to look at the timeline of the event on Flight 93, look at the conspiracy theories behind Flight 93, and be introduced to one of the most influential conspiracy theories of the 9-11 denial movement. 
Between 703 and 739, four Al-Qaeda hijackers checked in to get into Flight 93. These men include Zaid Jarad, the ringleader, Ahmed Al-Nani, Ahmed Al-Naznawi, and Zaid Al-Gamdi. On the day of the flight, there were 37 passengers and 7 crew members, which include Captain Jason Dale, First Officer Leroy Homer Jr., Flight Attendant Lorraine Bay, Sandra Bradshaw, Wanda Green, C.C. Lyles, and Deborah Welsh. On 9-11, Flight 93 was intended to leave at 8 a.m., but because of airport congestion, the plane didn't depart until 8.42. Now, as Flight 93 becomes airborne, Flight 11 had already been hijacked and was four minutes away from hitting the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. When Flight 93 reaches its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet at 9.02 a.m., Flight 175 is only a minute from hitting the South Tower of the World Trade Center. As air traffic officials are beginning to become aware of the possibility of a terrorist attack, at 9.23 a.m., text cockpit warnings were being sent to First Officer Leroy Homer Jr. using the Aircraft Communication Addressing Reporting System, known as ACARS. In the ground, Melody Homer, the wife of Leroy Homer Jr., learns about the events in New York City and requests to send an ACARS message to her husband asking if he's okay. At 9.27 a.m., the flight crew responds to routine radio traffic from air traffic controller. This would be the last communication made by Flight 93 before the hijacking begins. At 9.28 a.m., the hijackers attack. At 9.39 a.m., 11 minutes after the hijack has commenced, the ringleader of the terrorist group, Zaid Jarad, accidentally sends a message to air traffic controller in Cleveland. It is believed that he was trying to speak to the passengers on board instead to inform them that there was a bomb on board and to remain calm. Now at around 9.30, passengers on Flight 93 began calling loved ones to inform them of their situation. At the time, it was believed that they were being held hostages, but unfortunately, as you know, this would not be the case. One individual who realized the same thing was Tom Burnett from Bloomington, Minnesota. When he called his wife, she had informed him of the attacks on the World Trade Center, in which he responded, The hijackers were talking about crashing the plane. Oh my god, it's a suicide mission. At 9.47 a.m., Flight attendant C.C. Lyles calls her husband one last time to leave him this heartbreaking message. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. Hi, baby. I'm, baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. Um, I don't know what to say. There's three guys they've hijacked the plane. I'm trying to be calm. We're turned around, and I've heard that there's planes that's been, been thrown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. End of message. Three minutes later, flight attendant Sandra Bradshaw calls her husband to inform him that she was heating up water to throw out the hijackers. Seven minutes later, the revolt on Flight 93 begins, which caught the attention of the hijackers who noticed the disruption outside the cockpit. In the process of the passengers attempting to regain control of Flight 93, Zaid Jarad begins to roll the airplane left and right to stop the revolt from the passengers. At 9.59, Jarad then pitches the nose of the airplane up and then down, to once again destabilize any attempt from the passengers to disrupt the mission. At 10 a.m., the food cart is heard being rammed onto the door of the cockpit. 
in which one person can be heard saying, In the cockpit. If we don't, we'll all die. At 10.01, as the hijackers have begun losing control of their mission, Dura asks one of the hijackers whether he should crash the airplane, in which he is told, Yes, put it down. In Flight 93's final maneuver, Dura flips the plane upside down into a nosedive, which crashed the plane at around 10.03 a.m. in Stony Creek, Pennsylvania. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, Flight 93 came crashing down at about 563 miles per hour at a 40-degree nose-down inverted attitude. At the time of the crash, the 757 airplane was carrying between 5,500 to 7,000 gallons of fuel, which created a massive mushroom cloud upon impact, scattering small debris around the area. One of the engines ended up being in a catchment pond just 2,000 feet from the impact zone. Flight 93 also left a crater size of about 8 to 10 feet deep and 30 to 50 feet wide. The coroner ruled that everyone who was alive during the plane crash died instantly on impact. Lastly, by the time the fighter jets were informed of the possible hijacking of Flight 93, the plane had already crashed. It is believed that the possible target for this plane was either the White House or Capitol Hill. Now, every time the word conspiracy and 9-11 are used in the same sentence, our mind often thinks about the crazy conspiracy theorists screaming out false flag operation or that 9-11 was an inside job. But in reality, 9-11 was a conspiracy because on September 11, 2001, Al-Qaeda members secretly conspired to attack the United States of America and did so successfully. But it is the conspiracy theorists who we will be focusing on today and understanding what makes 9-11 the motherload of conspiratorial thinking in the 21st century. As a listener, let me ask you a question. Who shot JFK? Was it Lee Harvey Oswald? Maybe it was the CIA. Or maybe it was the Cubans. Let me ask you another question. Who shot Ronald Reagan, or tried to at least? Were you even aware that he had an assassination attempt? If you were like me, you didn't know that on March 30th, 1981, John Hickley Jr. tried killing our 40th president, but how come you barely hear about this? How come we've never heard any conspiracy theories about the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan? But countless conspiracy theories about the assassination of John F. Kennedy Jr. The reason for this is because while Ronald Reagan's assassination attempt was a failure, JFK's was not. In psychology, one of the thriving factors of conspiratorial thinking is something called proportionality biased. As academic psychologist Rob Rutherton states, when something big happens, we tend to assume that something big must have caused it. In other words, the size of the event must be in proportion to its cause. We see this bias play out whenever there's a school shooting like in Sandy Hook Elementary School or when JFK was assassinated. The fact that one individual can alter the course of American history is unfathomable. Therefore, there must be a secret sinister ball that is hiding behind the curtains and controlling everything, and I mean goddamn everything. For conspiracy theorists, the fact that 19 men hijacked four planes and crashed them into the World Trade Center, Pentagon, and Stony Creek, Pennsylvania, in less than two hours, causing the death of over 3,000 people, creates a sense of imbalance that can only be relieved by explaining events from a conspiratorial framework. Because in doing so, the individual with conspiratorial inclinations can regain a sense of control in a world that on any given day can become unpredictable and chaotic like it was on 9-11. Now, when it comes to the conspiracy theory of Flight 93, there are two prominent conspiracy theories exclusive to this plane crash, and we're going to start with the most ridiculous one, which is the one that the plane landed safely in Ohio, and a substitute plane was involved in the crash in Pennsylvania. This explanation derives from the fact that on 9-11, Delta Flight 1989 was confused for Flight 93 and was believed to be a hijacked plane, 
Fortunately for the passengers and crew members, this was not the case, and that plane landed in Cleveland, Ohio. Though there are some hardcore 9-11 troopers that believe this explanation, for the most part this conspiracy theory is even too fringe for the vast majority of the 9-11 conspiracy theory community. The second conspiracy theory is that Flight 93 was shot down by US fighter jets before hitting land. And it's a conspiracy theory that has been proposed by the infamous conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, who we talked about on the episode on Sandy Hook Elementary School. Link in the description below if you're interested in that episode. And the other conspiracy theorist, David Ray Griffin. Before we explore who Mr. Griffin is, we first have to understand what happened after Flight 93 crashed in, Sto in Stony Creek, Pennsylvania. Back in Washington DC on 9-11, a number of top officials were relocated to the Presidential Emergency Operations Center deep in the White House, essentially an underground bunker. One of these people was then Vice President Dick Cheney, who had authorized Flight 93 to be shot down. But upon learning about the crash, it is reported that he said, I think an act of heroism took place on that plane. Now whether he actually said that is questionable. Nonetheless, two F-16 fighter pilots from the 121st Fighter Squadron of DC at Air National Guards were sent to intercept Flight 93. Take into consideration that as they depart, the fighter jets had no missiles to take down a 757 airline. So instead, both pilots willfully decided to go on a suicide mission and crash into Flight 93. Which is actually insane to even imagine. Like, for one quick second, think about if that actually occurred. Already, Flight 93 is filled with conspiracy theories, but to now add that fact that Air Force pilots were willing to sacrifice themselves for their country is just a detail of 9-11 that no conspiracy theorist would ever believe, and as a matter of fact, would reinforce whatever viewpoint they have of the US government. Here's Mark Sesville and Heather Penny talking to CBS Evening News about what happened during 9-11 and have to hit the airplane and, and disable it somehow. A kamikaze mission. Our only choice was going to be to ram the airliner. Sir, I remember you would take the cockpit to aim at the terrorists. And I would take the tail. That's not something you survive. No. As the military, we don't send our service members on suicide missions. It was clear what needed to be done that morning. Now when it comes to 9-11 conspiracy theories, David Ray Griffin is one of the most popular conspiracy theorists on the topic. One can consider him a conspiracy theory producer since he has sold a number of books and speaks at gatherings about the inside job of 9-11. But who is David Ray Griffin and what are his credentials? Well, Mr. Griffin is a retired professor of philosophy and religion and theology. And so why is a professor of theology asserting claims as facts? as if his background granted him the sufficient understanding of physics. It's because David Ray Griffin's objective is not to understand functionality, how things occur, which is objective, but intentionality, why things occur, which is subjective. And since the study of religion and theology is a subjective matter, David Ray Griffin brings these principles into his worldview of 9-11, not caring about how, but why. To help you, the listener, visualize what I'm saying, imagine someone pushed me off a cliff and as I fell, I broke my leg. Now, you being a witness of this, understand the functionality of how my leg was broken. Someone had to push me off a cliff. But if you were to ask why was I pushed, would that inform you about the status of my leg? Not really. Because what is important in asking why is the reason behind the action, not the consequence of it. Like we discussed in the Sandy Hook Elementary School episode, David Ray Griffin is stuck in the process of affirming the consequence, which grants all explanation the same validity, 
In David Ray Griffin's worldview, the fact that four planes were hijacked on 9-11 isn't because of an Al-Qaeda plot against the United States, but because of U.S. imperialism. Here is David Ray Griffin making this point. At this point, some people, having seen evidence that U.S. leaders would be morally capable of orchestrating 9-11, might avoid looking at the evidence by appeal to myth number two. Our political and military leaders would have had no motive for orchestrating the 9-11 attacks. This myth was reinforced by the 9-11 Commission while explaining why, why, that Al-Qaeda had ample motives for carrying out the attacks this report mentions no motives that U.S. leaders might have had. But the alleged motives of Al-Qaeda, that it hated America and their, Americans and their freedoms, is dwarfed by a motive held by many members of the Bush-Cheney administration, the dream of establishing a global Pax Americana, the first all-inclusive empire in history. This dream has been articulated by many neoconservatives, or neocons, during the 1990s after the disintegration of the Soviet Union made it seem possible. It was first officially articulated in the defense planning guidance of 1992, drafted by Paul Wolfowitz on behalf of then-Secretary of Defense Dick Cheney. Now at face value, David Ray Griffin builds the foundation of his argument with some layer of truth. In his statement, he argues that the U.S. government profits from war and that, historically speaking, that the U.S. institutions have not had a problem harming or testing on their citizens. A good example of this is the Tuskegee Experiment of 1932, another topic I covered in a previous episode. While it is true that the U.S. government is by no means a role model of peace, the argument ignores the fact that Osama bin Laden publicly went on record to take credit for the attacks on 9-11. It also ignores the fact that as the planes were crashing down into their intended targets, the hijackers were screaming, Allah is great, Allah is great. However, what makes David Ray Griffin's argument problematic is that it's solely based on intentionality, not functionality. As you just heard, he states that the 9-11 Commission report only focuses on the motive of Al-Qaeda, but not the motive of the US. And that's because Al-Qaeda is the one that actually confessed to committing the crime. Why add an extra section into the 9-11 Commission report on hypotheticals? It's at this point where 9-11 conspiracy theorists will say, you're a sheep for thinking that the U.S. government would never attack its own people. The problem with that statement is that I never thought that in the first place. My issue is that what that statement is trying to imply is that the U.S. government is always plotting against its own people. The keyword being always. Because always enables an individual to violate the black and white fallacy, which states that a statement is either absolutely true or absolutely false. Never an in-between. And if you, as a listener, follow politics you know that nothing is ever black and white. Now when it comes to Flight 93, David Ray Griffin and Alex Jones both argue that the airplane was shot down, and one of the reasons is because of how far the engine was from the plane crash. Take into consideration that neither Griffin nor Jones are experts in airplane accidents, they claim that during a usual plane crash, the wreckage are always near the zone of impact. Recall that an airplane coming at more than 500 miles per hour nose first created an enormous fireball. So is it possible that debris from the plane could have spread out from the explosion? According to Michael Hines, an actual expert in airplane crashes, it is. As he states, at very high velocities at 500 miles per hour or more, it would only take a few seconds to move or tumble across the ground for 300 yards. However, 
9-11 conspiracy theorists questioned the statement by stating that this doesn't explain the plane that was roaming around near the crash site of Flight 93, and because of this, that it is still possible that the plane was shot down by the US government. But the plane that they are referring to was a Dassault Falcon business jet, which was not a military aircraft, and was asked to assess the zone of impact on September 11, something that many aircrafts were asked to do since all four hijacked planes had their transponders turned off, leaving air traffic controllers unaware of the location and altitude of each plane on 9-11. So how come conspiracy theories about Flight 93 persist to this day? Well, because no one really knows exactly how the plane went down. We don't have a video of what occurred, only eyewitness testimonies and phone recordings to give us an insight inside the airplane. For the rest of us, we can only imagine what all the passengers and crew members were experiencing in that horrific situation. Because of this, there is room for conspiracy theories and alternative explanations that thrive in small gaps of mystery. It enables the denialism about our understanding of our world and understanding of real human suffering. But what is David Ray Griffin's motive in promoting conspiracy theories about 9-11? As I previously said, Mr. Griffin is a conspiracy theory producer, but is it solely because of profits? Here's David Ray Griffin doing a Q&A after his lecture, and listen to how he responds to a question and a reaction from the audience. Several questions, in fact, are related to your own safety. How concerned are you? Not, because um, either they're going to take me out or leave me alone. If they leave me alone, I get to enjoy my old age and write my systematic theology. If they take me out, my 9-11 books go to the number one spot on the... <laughs> so it's a win-win situation. For David Ray Griffin, he's not in the field of conspiracy theories to understand what happened on September 11, 2001. He's in it to be regarded as a public intellectual, a leader of change, and to be praised for his make-believe, bravery, at the cost of denying the pain and suffering of the victims and family members of 9-11. I hope you found today's episode informative. If you're listening on Spotify, click on that follow button for me. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, click on that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. By doing so, you help expose this podcast to people who might be interested in conspiracy theories when in politics. If you're listening on any other platform, make sure to follow for more analysis on the conspiratorial mindset. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Social Chemist. If possible, share this podcast with your friends to have some interesting discussions about today's episode. For sources, you can find all the references on the show notes below. So with that being said, take care and question everything with logic.